Introducing the new era of digital identity with Socure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why Socure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. Socure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, Socure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with Socure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit Socure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. What I think COVID brought to your point, Brian, is it flipped the incentive structure on its head. The world demanded action. And I think if we're going to try and transform the public sector, we have to understand how to better play within the incentive structures, how to tweak those incentive structures, how to highlight where the incentive structures are flawed. Because outside COVID, the incentive structure is do nothing. That means no risk. That means you're not going to get more scrutiny and you're not going to get enough scrutiny that you get fired. Until like unemployment assistance goes down and people can't get their unemployment checks and they're screaming and hollering. Now, all of a sudden, the incentive is go, 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 go. And I think if we really broke down like why things changed so much during COVID, agnostic of leadership, I don't care if it was a red state, a blue state, a career CIO, a brand new CIO, like take all those factors aside. Everybody was moving fast because society demanded it. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. And I'm your host, Brian Chittister. You guys might be surprised to know that in a recent NASIO survey of its members, it was revealed that the role of technologist ranked ninth in the list of 10 roles that state CIOs assume. Now, the survey is done by state CIOs, so this is them saying, this is what we think we do. Topping the list were communicator, relationship manager, strategist, motivator, and diplomat. An effective CIO is someone who knows how to navigate the entire ecosystem of state government and then execute on a plan that perhaps not everyone is going to be thrilled with. You guys might also be shocked that in that same survey, it was revealed that the median state CIO sticks around for about two years. Well, that's exactly what my guest Jamie Grant did in the state of Florida until his tenure came to an end this past summer. He left his post to start his own company, Redleaf, and has hit the ground running as we're going to get to into this conversation. In our discussion today, we're going to cover a lot, including what he thinks it takes to be a good state CIO, 
why collaboration is so vital in and out of the state, and why his time as a Florida legislator was so vital to any success that he had. Those that know Jamie and are familiar with when he became state CIO, it was in the middle of the pandemic and in a really dire situation for the state. So we're going to talk about that period of time for him and what he learned from it. Jamie, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks so much for being here. Dude, thanks thanks a ton for the time. Looking forward to it. You know, I I know we were we were bantering back and forth about this before uh, before we started, but I have the I have the feeling that there's going to be a lot of sports analogies that are going to be brought into this conversation today, which I I can't be more excited about. Yeah, yeah, I I uh, low key have I think I failed in the coaching profession worse than anybody, and I'll put my <laughs> opportunities to get into that space up against anybody. Uh, it's tough to mess it up more than I did, and that's how I kind of ended up where I am. That's awesome. Uh, well, I mean, you're a huge Auburn Tigers fan. I know we also talked about this too. You guys stole our head coach, the the guy that put the Liberty Flames on the football map and got us into into bowl eligibility, and then you just snatch him and and bring him back into the SEC. That seemed only fair after you took Malik Willis from us. I mean, right? I mean, we we it looks like based on what he's doing now that we got the best years of him too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's unfortunate because I I do it, from all accounts like don't know him but know some kids that played with him and and great kid like the NFL is just a different game man like you you don't get the same latitude as a quarterback uh that you get even in competitive uh landscapes of college so it's it's tough but hopefully he pulls it together absolutely and kind of on that on that same thread there's a quote on your LinkedIn I wanted to touch on a little bit ever to conquer never to yield. Tell me what that's all about. Um, so it, uh, the Auburn creed is, I think one of the, uh, best written pieces of organizational leadership. And before people say you're biased, you're an Auburn fan, two things can be true. I am absolutely biased. I do love Auburn university. Um, I think one of the things that the creed, um, kind of lays out is the principles of an organization Pat Dye kind of summed it up best that Alabama fans love Alabama football. Auburn fans love Auburn university. Um, and I think the ever to conquer, never to yield mentality is just a refusal to quit focus on what the kind of true North for the organization is focus on what the mission is. And when you focus on what that mission is understanding that there's, there's going to be um, hiccups, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be a lot of times that that quitting is easier than keeping on. Um, but the never to yield mentality is just to keep on going regardless of the noise around you or how hard it is. Let me ask you this. It's, it feels obviously it's not, it's not easy, but it's easier to have that type of mission for yourself. It becomes a whole nother ball game when you want to help your entire organization accept a mission like that. How have you gone about doing that in, in roles that you've been in to kind of have people really embrace that? ever to conquer, never to yield mentality. So I think one is you have to, you have to level set on what the mission is. And it's so easy for us to say like, here's a deck and you got to, you know, look at mission, vision values and all these kind of cliches that come out. And I think if we're not careful, we look at cliches and we're dismissive of them and we refuse or, or we, we, we don't look back at how it became a cliche and it became a cliche because deep down inside at the core is some real value. And so setting out an organization's mission, vision, and values is a really important thing. It just becomes super cliche when everybody's copycatting it and not necessarily understanding the core essence of it. So I think step one is, what are the principles of the organization? 
Like, who are we at our core? What is the DNA of this organization when it comes to character or integrity? And then the second piece is, what is the the, the other strand of our DNA when it comes to the problem we're trying to solve? And so I think those are the first two things. I think the third, to your point, Brian, you, you kind of almost, in my experience, need opportunities to prove it, to earn the trust of the team. So where you've said, here are the values and the principles that we're going to to uh, subscribe to as an organization. And then here's the problem we're trying to solve. I think leaders get in trouble when A, they betray the principles. So they say, hey, look, we're going to be transparent. We're going to be accountable. We're, we're going to... Um, we're going to treat everybody well with dignity, and then they don't, you you lose trust. I think the second is, here's the problem we're going to solve, but there's like super distracted roadmap all over the place. And so the team starts to lose faith that you actually know where you're going. And then I think third is like when they get to see you prove it in the face of resistance. And, you know, one of the things I told my team when I came over to the digital service and having been in the legislature as a, as a part-time legislator for almost a decade, I told him, I said, you've never seen uh, invigorated Jamie, like the day after a hit piece, Jamie. And I think the first time they saw a couple of hit pieces in the press that were born out of us taking truly, not hyperbole, septic stained carpet and exposed wiring and turning it into what the space, the digital service now calls home is. Like we got, we got in, in trouble, so to speak, in the press for the choices we made on on furniture buy, notwithstanding the fact that they were on a state term contract we were obligated to use and all these other things. I, I give the example because legitimately the person who ran that for me, that, that whole project, thought she was getting fired when the hit piece was written. And I think when they saw me kind of just energized to, to go have fun and, and kind of um, maybe just kind of um, disregard the noise a little bit, but be motivated by the noise. I think, you know, the, 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 the TLDR on that is know your principles, know the mission, and then be committed to them and prove that to the team. I think they start to go, okay, wait a minute. Like I believe in the way that leader operates. I believe in the mission. I trust that he has a mission for us. And so I will follow. That's crazy to me because for those that don't know, you actually joined during the pandemic. And you're telling me that they had nothing else better to write about than the furniture <laughs> choices that you were doing at Florida Digital Service? It's uh, my friends love to make like business introductions or friend introductions. <laughs> like, hey, this is Jamie. By the way, he's really good at buying furniture. Um, they all know it was 391 grand. Like it, it became like a thing, a running joke, but we leaned into it. it the collab just won an award from NASPO, Jennifer Cook, who, who kind She's of- She's amazing, by the way. I love Jennifer. She's done a yeah. great job there. Yeah. Yeah. So Jen's awesome, right? Jen literally took an open challenge. And I said, like somebody pack out the collab and gave them freedom to run with it. She ran with it. She's now received a national award for collaboration workspace, something I think from NASPO or NASCO, one of the two. Um, and, and I think the, the thing there is like, trust your team, but also like, I think they got to see what happens if you have that um, never to yield mentality, because it would have been easy to go, Oh gosh, we just got in trouble for buying furniture. And instead we said, guys, no, we needed to get rid of the cube farm. We needed to get rid of septic stained carpet. Exposed wires are bad in 2022 or 2021, whatever it was at the time. And like, let's create an environment where world-class thought leadership can happen and people want to come in and communicate and collaborate so that we can begin the process of transforming government. When they saw us continue rolling through it, I think they started to get empowered to go, hey, it's okay if I mess up. He's got our back. 
Yeah. And again, shout out to Jen Cook. I mean, she's done a great job with that. And I was down in Orlando a few months ago and I was talking to her and her vision for what she wants to do with that, taking it on the road, kind of making it a, a statewide thing, but bringing it to the different state level agencies across the entire state yeah. is it's, I mean, it's audacious and as it should be and um, really impressive because she has what it takes to, to do it. So um, if you guys don't know anything about the collab, I recommend you checking it out and reaching out to Jen Cook because um, she'll become your best friend. Collab at digital.fl.gov to give her a plug. If you want to get to her, that's the way to get to her. But Brian, you couldn't be more right. She's a she's a rock star that when you point her at a project and say, I need this done, you don't have to look back. It will get done and it'll get done in a beautiful way. So to, to bring in another sports analogy, uh, you were quoted as saying, we're a startup within government. We didn't inherit a program that's won a few championships. We inherited a program that's never won a football game. And I can't leave until that changes. And yeah. newsflash, you left in the summer. So you must not have a zero in that win column anymore. Tell me a little bit about the advancements that you did at Florida Digital Service. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's hard, right? Like, I think um, anytime you make the kind of progress with the kind of speed that we did, um, it's uh, it's a little bit organized chaos. Um, and hopefully it's more organized than chaos. But I think the first thing we did was we got out of the data center business. I was really vocal when I got here that I don't believe government uh, can run CapEx operations like a data center well. And that's not just because of what's happening in the industry and what the cloud service providers are doing. Um, that's just really in general to run a CapEx operation well, you need to understand the financial and operational impacts on a five and 10 year roadmap. And in Florida, we have term limits, which regardless of what people think about them means different chair chairman of committees and a new speaker and a new president of the Senate every two years. A roadmap is darn near impossible. And it's why if you talk to folks at, at kind of the NASIO crowd, Florida has a reputation of being one of, if not the most challenging or most difficult state CIO jobs in the country because there's this super active, constantly changing legislative mandate, preference, funding, whatever it may be, um, that creates some real challenges. And so there's just not a lot of institutional knowledge, um, which means that the unelected staff and the unelected bureaucrat who answers to nobody gets to make really, really, really significant uh, decisions just by kind of the construct of their job, right? And so for those reasons, I think trying to run a data center as government is is just a recipe for disaster and and destined to fail. And so we were able to get out of the data center. What that meant for us operationally, when I got here, our budget was, I think, $67 million. 92% of that funding was to run a data center. And 82% of the FTEs we were allocated were federally funded to operate the data center, which meant in the inverse... 8% and 18% of dollars and people could do things like enterprise cybersecurity, enterprise data, reforming the way we look at projects and, and do enterprise policy around purchasing and, and an enterprise architecture. And by the time I left, uh, and, and I want to give the clear caveat because I, I still do believe in a, a very limited light touch government, um, but the funding started to get to where it needed to get to, to start getting serious about security in Florida. So uh, we outsourced a data center, which was a big win. We went from zero state agencies in history that had ever collaborated in real time on cybersecurity to 37. We went from zero local governments participating with the state cybersecurity operations center to almost 200 
300 plus had opted in and we just didn't have the the funding or the ability by the, the, the type of entity they were to support them. But I think you'll see that grow. And so you now have for the first time a jurisdictionally agnostic, I think a model for what whole estate security looks like uh, that the team's now getting to, to take off and run with. And then we put in place an enterprise architecture that hopefully will become pervasive in the, the purchasing of technology, namely starting at the design phase um, and, and trying to get away from some of those things. So there's a handful of things that I would put in there, but I think the thing I'm most proud of is the community and the collaboration and the participation culminated with one agency actually coming inbound voluntarily to report that they had been breached that helped us identify that exact same vulnerability, um, that that same malware in three other agencies, not yet activated, um, that we could take action on. That isn't a technology thing. That's a people trusting you thing. Um, and I think those are those are some of the things that I'd say are, I'm, I'm most proud of in our tenure. Obviously, the Hurricane Ian episode was, was something we got to have a lot of fun running our playbook, doing some really cool work as well. Do you feel like you would have had that same level of success without your legislature background? No. Like with the yeah, with the with the challenges that you talked about for a state CIO in Florida, it almost it almost becomes prerequisite. No. And and, and one of the things um, you know, I've promised to like open source uh my brain and the stories, but every one of my predecessors eventually ran into uh those unaccounted, uh, unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. Um, and, and those folks can, can legitimately make it impossible to operate if they choose to, they can either be super supportive. Um, but like most of them don't come from industry. Most of them don't come from like having built something or run something. They come from, they got a PMP and sure. That's a great education. It's a, it's a tool in the toolkit that I think is important. That's, that's also really different than, than running or operating something. And so if those folks choose to, they can absolutely sink this office. And if I was to give the most transparent and honest accounting of how we survived three sessions, I don't believe any of my predecessors made it more than one session. Like that's how tough it's been in Florida. Um, I had to make some conscious choices at times to go, okay, like, is it time to go talk to the chair? Is it time to go talk to the speaker? Is it time to go talk to the president? Knowing I'm going to pay a price for it. But it was important enough to go, you know, I can't let this stuff happen in a vacuum over here. And and navigating that minefield uh, was a big chunk of my time that is unfortunately a reality in Florida that if we're ever going to see the digital service become what it's on track to become and what it should be, there needs to be some real accountability and reforms there. Yeah. And I think getting back to what we had talked about when we first started this conversation, you going to bat for your team, right? Saying it is, it, it becomes a necessity right now, even if I'm giving up a little bit of capital here to go talk to the right people and put myself on the line to make sure I'm empowering and giving my team the right tools, the right, the right abilities to be able to be successful. Otherwise, I mean, what are you in that role for? That's exactly right. And and so it becomes this delicate balance of where I've, um, how to help them best, right? There are a lot of fights I wanted to pick and still want to pick because there are a lot of, um, you know, I, I don't think it's hard to understand how serious I am and how much of a passion it is to transform the public sector from 10 years trying to do it in one branch and, and now three years trying to do it in another branch. Um, there's still a lot of 
uh, sunlight that's needed to expose some of the real problems. Um, and I kind of got to a place towards the end where I felt like I could do more on the outside than on the inside, because on the outside, I work for me and I don't have to ask permission uh, of anybody to say, am I allowed to have this meeting? Am I allowed to tell this person the whole truth? What am I not allowed to say? How are we going to get in trouble? All of those kind of things that are unfortunate realities sometimes of the political landscape, but that have really significant consequences when we think about the digital service that our constituents receive or that the employees receive to provide services to their constituents. And so um, I think there's a long way to go, but I also am really proud at, about the progress we made um, that I, I think was kind of on warp speed in, in three years. I think we did six, seven, eight years of stuff in those three years. To your point, Brian, some, some ways amped up or accelerated by COVID and then Ian, where you get to operate in uh, state of emergencies, and you don't have to go through all of the bureaucratic administrative steps just to do rudimentary work. Yeah, and I want to touch on um, in a second. I want to touch on um, what you're doing outside of your role because it's it's been cool to see. But before we get to that, um, you and I were chatting earlier and discussing an article that I read this morning, and I bring it up because you talked about kind of I I sometimes say operating wartime. And where you had the pandemic, you you mentioned Hurricane Ian, yeah. and it, there is a lot of speed that happens in those situations. But I also think the roles of certain things get elevated. And in this article, they that was an example, um, one of the examples they gave as to why the CIO role has become even more, let's just say, powerful, right, within an organization from a decision making standpoint, from an in influential standpoint, right, and. I think that's that's an interesting change that we've seen from from pre-COVID to to now. Let's call it quote post-COVID, where the CIO is able to pull more strings, is able to have more influence across a state or across an organization at large. Uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a number of factors, right? But what I think COVID helped accelerate first and foremost is that we need to stop talking about the IT side of the business and the business side of the business. Um, that Venn diagram is a circle. And I think what we learned in, in COVID was you all of a sudden need to start caring about the network and connectivity and the ability to operate virtually, but maintain security. And so all of these different things that started bubbling up, um, I think started to highlight the fact that the, the C-suite for a long time has kind of been able to I don't want to say take for granted, but but kind of take for granted the work that the CIOs are doing. The second thing is that the CIO community needs to start understanding you don't just get to go into, you don't just get the empowerment to go into the C-suite or the board without all of the responsibility at the same time. So I, I truly believe, Brian, and, and I know we were talking about this earlier, but like I truly believe the CEO and COO of tomorrow, metaphorically speaking, is a great CIO today. You have to understand the OPEX world, uh, a SaaS world, understand the ways like build versus buy means something so different in this space than it did five, six, seven years ago, even three years ago. And so I think that, um, you know, the, the article you shared, I think is spot on that there's kind of this level up that has to happen that when we think about what the core element of a C-suite looks like or what that team looks like. We're used to saying, okay, there should be a CEO, a CFO, a COO, maybe a chief marketing officer. 
Um, but like the CIO may or may not be at that table. They may or may not report to the CEO, like little organizational decisions. Um, and I think we're going to watch that change in warp speed. I think that's going to require a little bit of a different profile for some of the CIOs. And then I think it's going to require the organizations to learn the hard way that if you don't have executive leadership at the table that can understand what's happening in the way, uh, all the way down to the data element, right? But like that deep to understand what do we have? Where do we keep it? Why does it matter? Where does it go? Who owns it? What happens if it breaks? And at an executive level, the same way that a COO would uh, typically by, by kind of stereotype understand, you know, the, 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 the elements of a factory. You're kind of getting to the place where the C-suite um, has to understand those things. The way I, I, I kind of liken it, uh, if you ever saw, I think it was Starbucks, um, but it was kind of as health insurance costs just started skyrocketing over the last 10 years or so. Um, I think it was Starbucks, so don't quote me, but they came out and they said, look, you're in the healthcare business, whether you know it or not, right? Because now you are now a technology company, whether you know it or not. And I think that's what, um, I think that's what that article kind of highlights is everybody is in the business of technology now, whether they know it or not. And that's going to require some executive leadership that can own that domain, understanding what the business objectives are and, and how to, how to grow that. I think that's spot on. I remember, I, I remember seeing, um, I think it was BMW that, that had all this data on their customers and then ended up evolving because they had all this like driving data. They were able to actually move into the insurance business too. And I think that's just an example. I mean, th there's another talk where Apple's becoming a healthcare company, yep. right? But but at at its core, obviously, it's the iPhone, it's the iPad, et cetera. But with all, it's data that's really changing things and bringing somebody in like a CIO that that has that understanding of how everything works. I think is the only way you can really be successful in leveraging because the ones that don't evolve, I think are the ones that won't be here in the next year or two. It's not like the next 10 years, it's the next year or two because everything's moving so fast. And it feels like CIOs now have to do cross training, right? You have like somebody like yourself, you, you, you said that you wouldn't have had the same level of success had you not served in the legislature. We have, we have somebody in Texas, Mandy Crawford, who's doing an amazing job at Texas DIR, who is really by trade, a lawyer, right? And it, she, her background kind of evolves into what she's doing, et cetera. So you get into almost, you need to have backgrounds and other things to really open up how you approach different challenges that you're going to face. Yeah. It's funny. So I, I tell people I'm a recovering and repentant lawyer. Uh, Mandy and I joke about that often, but like how are um, her more, she, I mean, she obviously practiced a lot longer than I did. I made it like a year and a half before I pulled the ripcord. Um, but it, 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 that is another element of the background that really helps when you start getting into things. I, I think the parallel there, um, great lawyers figure out how to get to yes. Great procurement shops figure out how to get to yes. And so they don't tell you, no, you can't do that. They tell you, you can't do it that way. Let me give you a few other options. And I think that's what the CIO and CISO community is going to have to learn at warp speed is we've got a lot of folks in the CIO CISO community that love the way it's always been done, that love to kind of explain this is how it works and this is why it needs to happen this way. And I think that's kind of that meshing that I was trying to, to touch on before is the CIO and CISO community has to lean in and say, hey, I got to get to yes 
in a way that protects the organization. I don't get to just be the no machine. Um, and I think lawyers and, you know, the, the, uh, lawyers and procurement shops, uh, and, and sometimes the CIO and especially the CISO community, it's like, Hey, I can keep us safe. I just unplug it all. Um, I think those folks need to learn like, Hey, it's okay to get to yes. We got to get to yes. So give me options that get us to yes, that let us go serve our customers that let us grow, grow the business, but without growing vulnerability and liability at the same time. Yeah. I think that's spot on. And I think that's that again, it's a change in mindset. Right. You can't you can no longer in government. It's one of the reasons why I feel like government at all levels has kind of failed to innovate for as long as they did. And then the pandemic happened and everybody had an oh no moment. But um, is you had people in, in roles that just kind of continued to like like, let's say somebody dropped into your role and said, OK, yeah, we're just going to keep paying for data centers. And yeah. You know what? It's, we're going to keep paying for data centers and the next person will come in and then they'll deal with it. Right. And that's how that's not how you innovate. You need somebody to come in that's going to kind of ruffle a few feathers, disrupt what's happening and kind of change the mindset of, of individuals. So they feel, say, no, we're, we need to get here. And it's not that we need to get here. We're going to get here. It's just, we need the path to get here now. And I think that's the change. So I think that's there. And I also, you know, one of the things I tell the team all the time and, and somebody's probably said it a different way before me, but incentive structures are undefeated. And so the reality of the public sector is that your incentive structure is survival. And so the, the career govy, as some people call it, would, would say, you, you know, the advice you're coaching them on, if their objective is to, in Florida, hit their 30 years and get the pension and, and do good, they may still be really mission-focused focus people. I had a lot of career folks that I was really impressed with and really grateful to have on our team. But if you're coaching them, you coach them in a job like mine to say, hey, don't rock the boat. Like, Understand how much the, the 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 boat can handle and don't rock the boat. The thing that people uh, tell the private sector appointee as an agency head, and and uh, maybe this is a few states where I've validated it's it's for sure true in Florida. You know, you get appointed to be the secretary of X or the the executive director of Y, and the 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 kind of the 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 cliche directive is pick your one thing, make improvements to that one thing. Don't stay longer than two years because the staff and the bureaucrats will be pissed off at you by that point and leave on your own terms. And so what I think COVID brought to your point, Brian, is it flipped the incentive structure on its head. The world demanded action. And I think if we're going to try and transform the public sector, we have to understand how to better play within the incentive structures, how to tweak those incentive structures, how to highlight where the incentive structures are flawed. Because Outside COVID, the incentive structure is do nothing. That means no risk. That means you're not going to get more scrutiny and you're not going to get enough scrutiny that you get fired. Until like unemployment assistance goes down and people can't get their unemployment checks and they're screaming and hollering. Now, all of a sudden, the incentive is go, 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 go. And I think if we really broke down like why things changed so much during COVID, agnostic of leadership, I don't care if it was a red state, a blue state, a career CIO, a brand new CIO, like take all those factors aside. Everybody was moving fast because society demanded it, which now meant the incentive structures were demanding it. Now that we're back to blue skies and, you know, everybody's kind of back to business is, is quote unquote normal. Like the incentive structure for government to go, 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 go isn't there anymore. And I think that's the unfortunate piece is that it's so easy to revert back to the survival means take limited or no risk. 
And if we adopted that mindset, I'm not sure we'd be in the horse and buggy phase of transportation yet, but we certainly wouldn't be where we are today. I, I asked this question to leaders more so toward in the middle of the pandemic and towards the end. And I'm going to ask you now, even though you sort of just answered it, but I'm curious to get your take here. Do you think that government can stay at that pace? Yes. How? What's it going to take? I think it takes incentive structures, education, and executive leadership. You know, what I think, Brian, was, was uh, so I, admittedly, I came in, uh, I kind of described my appointment of post-PPE and pre-vaccine. So it was after you couldn't get all the protective equipment and that whole thing died down. Um, it was after unemployment compensation had had gone down. So I didn't necessarily deal directly with that, All I, although I had a little bit of cleanup on a, on a few things there. Um, what I think that brought to light is there's actually a lot of people in government, and, and I just alluded to it, but there's a lot of like career folks who want to change the world. They just haven't been given permission to make mistakes. And they just haven't been given the empowerment to go do more. And so at the end of the day, like when we went through Hurricane Ian or when we went through the second half of COVID that I was in the, in the emergency operations center for, you know, we were going 16 hours a day on average easily. The notion that like government workers are lazy is like any other stereotype. There's probably pockets, it's true, but I can, I can highlight to a lot of people that were just begging for the opportunity to do something special. They just been beaten down so much by you're not allowed to do that because they didn't have leadership willing to say, hey, let's go screw it up. And the worst thing that happens is I get fired. And that was one of the things I tried to vocalize early and probably hit the right way with some people and the wrong way with others. But I told people like loudly, I'm not here for a career. And the worst thing that happens to me is I get fired, which means a huge pay raise. I get to get to Auburn for a lot more football and basketball games. I get to see my friends and family a lot more. Um, walk me through the bad news of getting fired. It wasn't that I didn't cherish the opportunity and, and, and wasn't super grateful to the governor for the opportunity. It was just to say, I'm not going to play scared to get fired. I'm not moving to Tallahassee and taking this pay cut and doing all these things just to to have a uh, to sit in the chair or have the title. And I think, I think absolutely government can move at that pace, but it starts at the top. And I don't care if you're the CIO for a Fortune 100 company or the CIO for a state or a county or a city. And it's the thing I tell my friends that aren't in the technical community when they go, how come my technology shop isn't better? I said, look in the mirror first. If you're not giving them the executive backing and the reinforcement to go implement a playbook design a roadmap and then deliver those reforms. You got to understand people don't want, there, there are groups of people who don't want that. Just like the cab industry didn't want Uber and the hotels didn't want Airbnb and like down the list. Blockbuster, Blockbuster didn't, didn't want Netflix. We were going right there. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. So there's, there's a hundred, there is always somebody who doesn't want the cheese move because they're fat and happy where the cheese is. And so I think that what government, needs is executive leadership and empowerment and invigoration because there are these great talented people that want to do really cool work that just aren't supported and so who rises to the top too often are the people that are content and complacent in that don't rock the boat mentality instead of us figuring out how to empower um and and promote the folks who are willing to step out there the gen cooks of the world 
who didn't get a playbook for the collab. I just said in all hands, somebody pack out the collab. That's all she needed was the invitation. And you saw what happened. So I think sometimes we just make excuses. I really do. And I think that the public sector is different. I think it's hard, but so is the private sector. The, 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 the thing that they have in common is that the incentive structures predict the behavior almost perfectly. And we got to play with the incentive structures if we want to change the behavior. I'm glad you brought up the the leadership aspect of that and and kind of using yourself as an example. Um, it a lot of what uh, Jennifer Palka talks about in her book, Recoding America. I don't know if you've read that book yet. I've I've seen it, but I yeah. want to check it out just because we've got some mutual friends. I've a uh, beautiful job on the logo, uh, the 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 cover. Whoever did that, I I thought it was uh, they did yeah. a really nice job, and I've seen some content around it, so I'm looking forward to checking it out. No, it, and she's great. I had her on the, on the podcast and we we went deep into some of these very same topics and it was interesting to see her opinion on it. But one of the things that she talks about is exactly what you just said, is giving people the permission to fail, right? Helping them understand your job isn't to do it a, step A, step B, step C. Your job is just to get to Z yeah. and figure out the best way to do it. The, the example she uses is if I tell you to build a concrete boat, we need people that'll look at you and say, that's not going to float. Right. Right. Not, okay, well, I'm going to go build a concrete boat so I don't get in trouble. And <laughs> and the quote that she brings up, and I love this quote, it's, um, and it has to do with leadership because you can't execute on a quote like this without somebody at the top helping in power. It's, it's General McChrystal. And he says, don't, don't follow the order I gave, follow the order I would give if I knew what you knew, right? If I was there, right. what would you do? And, or what what would I say to do? And that's what we need more of in government. We need people that are willing to say, hey, my, my boss just told me to get to Z. Yeah. I'm going to do it in the most efficient, cost-effective way, in the most innovative way possible, right? And it, you're spot on, though, but it, it happens. It has to be from the top. You have to be able to be empowered, have somebody willing to allow their team to do that, and that's going to be the big change. So you touched on a few things that I'll share that um, we're, we're just kind of one, our mantra at the digital service uh, and a guy named Grant Garrison, who I, I uh, kind of brought back from some work we did together in the private sector, but brought him in because uh, timing just happened to work out. He uh, somebody was stupid and made him part of a riff when the first riffs were starting not too long ago. And he happened to post on LinkedIn, you know, looking for an opportunity. I was like, holy crap, you don't get talent like that in government very often. And so um, Grant actually turned it into uh, a logo, but smaller flags. And I'll come back to that in a second. Our, uh, our, our mantra, our rally cry at the digital service was something called smaller flags that touches exactly on that. Two, I would tell the team all the time, um, if you make the same mistake every single day, you will get promoted to constituent eventually. Like, we're just going to say, congrats, we now work for you. You've made the same mistake over every day over and over and over, which is a nice way of saying you're, you're just going to be separated from our team. But I made clear that the fastest way to get promoted to constituent was make no mistakes. And so we very much had a culture in our all hands. We had a couple of times where people learned mistakes for the first time that we kind of treated as, okay, guys, the team gets to learn this once. We're going to coach this up as a team. Everybody needs to understand this is a really big mistake, but we're going to subscribe and, and hold true to our belief that you can make mistakes for the first time with immunity, as long as it's not issues of character integrity. If you're a liar or a fraud, that's not a mistake. That's a just a hardwired thing we're just never going to see eye to eye with. And so we tried very hard to say, 
And I would tell them all the time, I could put a rock in a chair for 30 years and it would get a heck of a pension in Florida. It wouldn't do anything. So I need people that will step out there. Um, let, let's play fast. Let's play hungry, but let's also play smart. And we're not going to make the same mistakes over and over and over. You started to see them buy in and I touched on it earlier, but there were a few different times where like the institutional um, cancer in government that says there has to be a fall guy when there's a mistake. Like, why can't we stand up in the public sector and say, I screwed up? I actually think voters would find it very refreshing for people that are on the ballot to turn around and go, you know, with the information we had, the McChrystal quote you just gave, I love, like, with the information we had, we thought this would be the play. We now understand that it's not the play. And so we're going to put that on the side and we're going to try something different. I think most reasonable people, um, the people who actually like win general elections as voters, understand that that like they want competence and honesty more than they want just like political screaming from the fringes. And so um, the the smaller flags mantra, I'll come back to that real quick, uh, and I'll tell you the super fast version of it. Uh, but a friend shared it with me when I got appointed. I forget how it came up, but he goes, man, I got to tell you the story. And so it stems actually from when Jeb Bush was running for governor of Florida back in the the the, the mid late nineties, and he looked up on the old Capitol, which sits right out in front of the the, the new Capitol uh, in Florida, but it's where like the U.S. flag and the Palmia flag, the POW MIA flag, were, um, and there was no state flag. And so, as uh, you know, making some assumptions, but the son of a Texan uh, probably grew up in a house that had some state pride. Goes, man, I, I can't believe we don't have Florida's flag on Florida's Capitol. And so uh, as he's running for office, he goes, if I'm the governor, we're going to have a state flag on the Capitol. And so then he get, he, he he wins. The inaugurations are done outside on the doorsteps of that Capitol. So if you're getting sworn in, you're looking up at that flagpole um, and there was no Florida flag. And so he gets elected and he goes, all right, guys, I was serious. We're going to put a Florida flag up there, get to work. And so they start diving into it. And he's in kind of like a, a an executive briefing meeting with his team. The way the story is told to me, there's 20 some odd people in the room. And he goes, all right. I want the Florida flag. And, uh, and and they're like, okay, we're working on it, we're working on it. Come back for that next meeting. And he's like, what's the status of the flag? And they said, all right, governor, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is the current poll can't support a third flag. Um, and the worst news is that the current dome can't support a bigger poll. The good news is we've already gone to the Department of Management Services and we've formed a task force and we've got some designs done and for about three and a half million dollars in a year and a half, we will have a reinforced dome and a bigger pole. And then we'll be able to put the Florida flag up. And he's kind of like, this is insane. And so uh, a, a bit exasperated as the story was told to me, he looks around the room. He's like, can anybody give me a better option? And some 20 something that's like getting his first job out of college goes, uh, governor, it, it seems to me that if we just use smaller flags, we can get it done tomorrow. And that was a mantra we had with our team was, that is not the smaller flag solution. So if you're going to tell me it's got to take rulemaking and a law change and the smaller flags, like find me a way to accomplish that objective and get really creative. And so we, we, we had two kind of mantras that stuck. Smaller flags was the big one. And then show me the law was the second one. And I think that's really important in the public sector is um, understanding where the floors and the ceilings are for what you're allowed to do. And so we played the game a lot of show me the law. You're saying I can't do that. Show me the law that says I can't do that. Um, and and trying to drill into that. But um, I love where um, where Jen's going with that and the McChrystal quote, because at the end of the day, as leaders, if we don't encourage respectful kickback and friction, we're going to fail 
over and over and over and over again. And I think that's maybe one of the biggest things um, that that I've learned in my career is as as the as the executive in charge of some capacity of something, if your team does not feel invited in, welcomed and encouraged to give you bad news more accurately and more quickly, your organization's doomed to fail. So how do we get them to feel comfortable doing that? You just got back from NASIO, um, like a lot of us, and I'm curious to get your your opinion on a couple of things. But one, when you were in your CIO role, how much was cross-state collaboration important to you, right? You talk so much about not making the same mistake twice, obviously, within the state of Florida. Yeah. How much, are you, how much are you, were you going to your counterparts in other states and saying, hey, we have this problem, right? We have, <laughs> we have giant pole that now won't fit on a dome and we need to yeah. figure out how to get a Florida flag on this pole. Do you have any answers, right? How much w- was that type of conversation happening for you? So I love that question and I'm going to answer it two ways if that's okay, because if I answer the way that's most accurate that you, the, the specific question of how did it work for me? I think it could give listeners a flawed, uh, a, a skewed view of where it should be. Mm-hmm. The short answer for me is almost never. And the reason is my problems were in the appropriation suite of the Florida legislature where they couldn't do rudimentary math. So if you have a staff director that says, we gave you $150 million, why aren't you spending it? And they don't understand that a big chunk of that went to a different organization, not your own organization. If they're not going to honestly admit that it's in reserve, a function that allows staff to determine whether or not you can actually spend it, if they don't understand that the state ledger doesn't show accounts due. So think about this in a SaaS world. If you're trying to do business in Florida, the ledger in Florida only shows the amount of money appropriated and then the amount of money spent. If you have a renewal coming up. So I had this happen to me and I, I took a bunch of bullets for this. I was being given directives to spend money that would have spent the organization well into the red. And I couldn't figure out why. And it dawned on me that they saw $21 million on the ledger and they didn't understand that $19 million in in bills were coming next month. Well, like I can't really call Mandy or JR or Tracy or Bill or Fred or Quinny, go go down the list of all these folks that I, I now consider dear friends in the industry. My problems were very Florida specific. And so I did spend a lot of time going to people that could help me navigate the legislative process to go, hey man, help me understand, like, are these people just intentionally lying or do they really not understand how this works? Um, And so, so that was my bigger problem. Now, if I answered it a different way, uh, a good bit of it is going on, not nearly enough. And I think that that's one of the things um, there's some stuff I'm working on (laughs) because I don't have enough on my plate, but there's a few (laughs) of us working on. um, I think there needs to be a vehicle and a mechanism for a political non-controversial tech-related public policy that covers a spectrum of things that plays in the deepest of blue states and the deepest of red states. Um, and there's a few of us working on something on on that front that uh, that that I hope to roll out in the next 60 or 90 days. Um, but I think there needs to be, I'll throw this out there, we have a nursing compact as an example. We don't have a SAS compact. That needs to change. Um, and so things like that, that allow us to operate across state lines and not just learn from each other, but also share resources. Um, 
because again, some people like the cheese where it is of natively building something custom for the exact same business function in 50 different states. We should instead be rewarding people who have built a great platform that let's say has 60, 70, 80% out of the box capabilities um, so that we're only building custom that maybe 20, 30, 40% down the road. Instead, we keep paying people to build stuff incentivized by the hourly rate they get to give us more hours. Um, and I think you're starting to see some some really cool stuff across states come to come together to go, wait a minute. If we built roads like we built software, the interstate would look like spaghetti. Because the builder would go, mm, man, we got to make another turn. Oh, sorry, there's a gopher tortoise over there. Oh, sorry, there's a hill over there. And they would give us an excuse for why the interstate wouldn't be a straight line. And, and if we built the interstate and paid the people who did that, based on the amount of asphalt they used or the number of hours they paved road, we would not have the same level of efficiency that we have with the interstate system that I think by, by most accounts has been a, a pretty significant success to operate across state lines. Code should be no different. What, and, and this is, this is sort of putting your, your CIO hat on, but now being able to speak a little more candidly, what can organizations in the private sector do to help enable something like that? Ooh, well, uh, I'd say stay tuned. Um, cause I think, so I think step one is starting with, um, a solution and logo agnostic approach. I'll give an example. Um, if we're not all coming together and I've said this on stage before, I, I said this in the chair when I was starting to, to run out of patience, you know, you have a handful of lobbyists that like to, to go attack cooperative purchasing agreements and say, oh my gosh, Jamie broke the law. Well, if you dig deeper, they represent one of the big armies of lawyers and uh, procurement officers that love procurements because they drown out the innovative company and they ensure that some big RFP or ITN or some other vehicle goes to their client. So they didn't actually have a problem with the decision was made. They just had a problem. It wasn't their client that won and they had a problem that they didn't get to monetize the procurements. And so they make money on making sure that government remains a foreign land where you have to have a Sherpa to operate, right? So imagine, Brian, if I said, hey, uh, we're going to expand your pod and we're going to go into Ecuador, Ethiopia, and Afghanistan. I need one sales rep that can like help me go navigate all those things. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. we probably need somebody who understands Afga Afghanistan natively, Ethiopia na natively, and Ecuador natively. Well, like the people who don't like... Um, Th those people then monetize the fact that they know it natively. If we start open sourcing information, experience, education, and initiatives, you no longer are as dependent on these people who are basically paying you to broker for translation services or for an introduction. Lead gen is never free. It's never going to be free. And, and all of these different roles in the ecosystem play a, a valuable role but like every other profession, there's the lobbyists who are really good at delivering value. And then there's the ones who maybe aren't just like lawyers and doctors and all those other kind of things. So I think, I think some of it is just the transparency and, and education around how it really works. And, and to say like, as a group of leaders, like we all spend time in the private side with NASPO and GSA and Kerasoft and WW, go down the list of all the logos. I don't want to, I'll get in trouble if I start naming logos, but like <laughs> the distributor and the reseller community, right? 
Um, we're all on board with cooperative purchasing agreements, alternate contract sources, proof of concepts, agile builds, all those kind of things. Turns out if we had a public debate about our way versus this other big procurement way, the general public would be on board with us too. So would the legislators. But we make the mistake of thinking that the policymakers understand any of it. And I think that was maybe the the the, the sum I'd give on the question. Sorry for the sermon, but it touches a, a trigger point where like I I didn't have a clue how much I didn't know when I took this job. I just knew that taking over any organization, I, I take kind of a six-month immunity period, lots of questions, try not to give any answers or recommendations, and just learn. It turns out that was a really good approach here because I thought I knew the operation of the sled, uh, the, the sled world from a legislative perspective. I didn't have a clue. That was just one perspective. And so I think it's a lot of, of coming together to say, in the example I give with alternate contract sources and, and cooperative purchasing agreements, I said at one of our digital government summits, if your lobbyist is not advocating for those things and you want to be doing more business faster with the state of Florida, fire your lobbyist and find a new one. Because these lobbyists that are trying to protect the broken, big RFP ITN process are a big part of the problem. Now, that doesn't necessarily win business for your company. But it does grow the total addressable market. It does speed up the pipeline. It's an example of, of reforms where we say, okay, how do we appease to make sure that it's open, transparent, and fair, but not at the sake of letting lawyers and auditors and procurement officers run the designs of a solution that has real impact to, in our case, a state that would be part of the G20 if it was a sovereign nation. Let me flip it here now. So you are in the private sector. Right, and you are working with with organizations on how to uh, how to do what they're doing better, more efficiently. Um, what are some of the things that you're doing at Redleaf to try to make things better, based on kind of what you saw in the state of Florida? So I think honing into a few things. Right, we we um, I'm a big believer in sales leading product market fit, and I'm going through a very public process of that. Um, and so where we have some organizations who say hey, uh, how did Florida make such transformational change so quickly, right? We went from arguably the worst performing state in the country uh, to, to what I truly believe is the model for whole of state. If, if people around the country are going to have an honest conversation of what whole of state really truly means at some level of depth. And so we have some organizations, both public and private sector, who say, hey, I don't understand what digital transformation means or what cybersecurity means. And our first response is good. It doesn't mean anything until you put some some, some meat on the bones, right? Um, and so we are helping some of those organizations. I think one thing you'll see us um, hopefully do more of in the future is help on the design and drafting of procurements. Um, we think we can be a third-party resource because you get a lot of CIOs who go, man, I know what I'm trying to do. I just can't get my lawyers or the procurement shop to agree to it. And sometimes you just need that outside voice to say, Hey, can we get to yes a different way? And and how do we improve the the thing that goes out? So so in the public sector specifically, and I think that's maybe more where you're asking. Public sector specifically, um, we want to see um, a more understood, consistent uh, purchasing process. And I think some of that happens when we represent government entities and come in and say, you know, hey. Here, here's a way we've seen this done really, really well. For example, um, 
almost every CIO has uh, suffered the disease of change order to death. And I understand, I'll, I'll stipulate, there are times where change orders make sense. Stipulated. They, the, the notion of underbid to change order up is a cancer on the public sector that needs to be eradicated. And we need to be coming up with solutions collectively to put that to bed. And there's some things that we've seen. Rob Lloyd out in, in San Jose um, gave an example at an, at an event we were at together uh, where he said, look, I've just started asking respondents. You got to detail how many contracts have been canceled, how many change orders have been given. Um, and it turns out some of the worst actors quit responding because their business model was underbid, change order up. And that's a real pervasive problem in the industry that we need to we need to attack. So we want to be a voice and we want to be an ally for organizations who are saying, man, I, I, there's got to be a better way to do it. My executives aren't listening to me, but you know, maybe it makes sense for us to do a design session first and some user stories first and a proof of concept first. So you'll see us roll out some SKUs on that front where we can be retained that way. Um, as I transition to the other side, one thing, you know, we're never making money on both sides of the transaction. So there are times we represent a technology company and there's times where we may represent a public sector entity um, that's always transparently and being paid on one side of that equation, which, you know, in those procurement designs or or, or um, in those procurement designs may mean a lot of less money than had we won a procurement with somebody. Um, but we want to get that kind of normalized where people go, you know, maybe we should break this process down. Um so that's a, a lot of words uh, to say that we're helping with advisory services for public sector entities trying to make their purchases and program design make more sense. The second thing we're doing on the public sector side uh, is um, we are uh, putting together two programs. So one is called SLED as a Service. It's kind of a cohort, almost like an incubator accelerator concept where we deeply partner with a limited number of technology companies. Uh, the reason we're limiting that is I don't think you can service past X number well. So right now in year one, we've said we'll take no more than eight companies, no more than one cohort per year, and we help them scale nationally by delivering uh, new lead opportunities, uh, by accelerating their pipeline from lead all the way to close one. Um, and so in that regard, it should be a group of companies that are kind of synergistic, complementary, um, and it's been really fun to kind of piece that together and put some of those companies together already. We're finalizing that, um, you know, by by mid-November at the the latest so that we can we can start the onboarding and go live process here pretty quickly. And then the second thing on that front, um, and Brian, this has to be one of the worst, most wordy answers of all time. I say, don't do marketing uh, for your company, Jamie. <laughs> never. Um, the, the second is the SLED 101 concept where these companies say, hey, I want access to the SLED space. I don't know how to get there. And so we put them through kind of an education um, that they get access to uh, and partnership with that culminates in them getting uh, access to contract vehicles. So they would start with us, they'd go through kind of what the SLED 101, how to navigate the landscape, and then end on a contract vehicle so that they have a license to hunt. Uh, admittedly, Brian, to kind of punch at myself and my own joke when I say I believe in sales leading product market fit. Uh, it's been this really interesting journey over the last, you know, 60, 90 days where people are like, hey, we'd love for you to do this. We'd love for you to do that. We'd love for you to do this. And you just start wandering all over the place. Um, we're honing in pretty quickly. Um, we're honing in pretty quickly on what the, the the core deliverables are to say, this is what we do. This is how you get it. 
it's also just been this really cool experience to go through a soft launch, wide open product market fit journey publicly. The feedback is the best. Like I love when people do their worst to what we're doing because it makes us better. Yeah, I definitely. Totally, totally understand that. I mean, I, there's some, there's sometimes in projects that I work on, I, I will literally withhold somebody that I want to have working with me on it just so they can come in and kind of red team it up for me and, and clean it yeah. out. So I can appreciate that. I have one more question for you before we jump into um, last five questions that I, that I have for everybody, but um, bringing back up Nasio last week, there, there's always the priorities that Nasio has. And I brought up Jen Palka. One of the things that she talks about in the book, she goes, um, she goes deep into a, a case study that she um, helped work on with California EDD during the pandemic around unemployment insurance. And one of the things that she talked about was um, the need for identity proofing in their in their system, right? It cleaned up a lot of the, the challenges that they were having. And at NASIO, it, it, that has boiled up to number one on the list. Obviously there's the, there's MFA, but there's also the, the proofing side of things on the citizens. I'm curious to know, especially during your time in Florida, what were some of the things that you did, but also what are some of the things that CIOs should be doing when they're looking to eliminate fraud and, and but also at the same time, getting your constituents, the services that they need in a timely fashion, right? Not putting too much friction there where it eliminates the mission. So I'm going to, a couple uh, headlines first. Identity proofing is a major part of identity and access management uh, strategy. Um, I think sometimes it gets really easy for us to be reactionary in this space. One of the things that scares me a little bit is that people are confusing identity and access management for MFA or said the other way. They're confusing MFA for identity and access management. They're confusing identity proofing for identity and access management. And much in the same way that we have an architecture that we call an enterprise architecture for an organization that's sophisticated, identity is, to me, a central tenant of that. And the concern I have a little bit, I'm going to give the concern first and then the, the good news second. The concern I have first is that I, I had a couple of peers at NASIO mid-year, which was my last this past one uh, in in uh, National Harbor was my last uh, NASIO event in the chair. And they were confusing constituent experience for identity and access management. And I was like, man, this is getting scary. So I think we have a major need to educate. And I love that you're, you're going down that path because um, like I said, MFA and, um, and, and identity proofing are a major tenant to great identity um, to, to an, a, a great strategy on identity. What we did in Florida that I think is most foundational and, and hopefully gets, I say in force, but just kind of becomes pervasive is that the identity has to contemplate. If we're going to talk about identity, we're talking about the application, the organization, the individual, or the device. And we have to be able to account for all four of those. I think what's happening is we're confusing identity for a person sometimes in these conversations. And then when we cannot validate that something is a person and fraud happens, we go, okay, this is a problem with the customer experience. And so now we need to go do X. Um, we did see some really, really significant uh, implementations with identity proofing that, that did some really, really great work throughout the pandemic across uh, a number of different agencies, which was cool to see. Um, but I think to your point, 
we have to make identity a central point of design. It has never been more important in all of human civilization for us to tell the difference between a human and a computer. And if we don't understand what just the infancy of Gen AI means on that front, then man, we're gonna we're gonna learn the lesson the hard way. And identity proofing becomes a really, really, really valuable tool um, to to be on the forefront of that fight. So I hope that we'll have more conversations about identity in a way that people understand the the real foundation of it, so that when those use cases pop up. And we say, man, I've got somebody trying to send money to China that we A, can validate it is a person and then B, that it is a person who's eligible to receive uh, whatever the, the transaction's requesting. So um, I think you could do a ton on that. Uh, I think Jen's right that the, the, the proofing piece becomes like really, really, really critical. What I get concerned about right now is the lack of holistic understanding around identity that I think we... We, we need a lot of education in the public sector on that from from my experience. Man, you brought up a lot of different things in there. We could go and hold All another right. hour. Unfortunately, we don't have time, <laughs> um, but I love where your head's at. There is so much kind of impacting that. I think I think that's one of the reasons why it, it boiled up. Um, so it's it's very cool to see that you're, you're conscious of it and see kind of the challenges in that space. And I think education is, is certainly needed. Um, all right, so I, I wanna get into the uh, the last five questions. Um, I, I mean, I will, I will say full disclosure based on our conversation, there might not be anybody I've been more excited to hear some of these answers from. So, um, <laughs> let's see, let's see where we go with this. Um, so I asked these five questions to all my guests, um, starting with the first one, what's the best advice that you've ever gotten? Ooh, best advice I've ever gotten. <laughs> Pick one thing, stay two years. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, man, I think it goes back to my parents. Um, they they always said you can be the you can be a garbage man you're just going to be the best garbage man Jesus ever saw. And and that coincided with you're going to treat everybody with respect. And and I think if I was to say the two things that have taught me more in life um it's taking pride in my work and treating everybody with dignity. And that's a that's a John and Beverly Grant special that was just hammered into us uh at home. And I, I think that's the the most timeless, best advice I've ever received. Love it. What about this flip side? What's the worst advice you've ever received? Hmm. <laughs> Go be the state CIO. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, d- no. Um, that's a joke. I, I, I share. Well, oh, you're done. That's headline. <laughs> even if, it, uh, even if it was a constant bar fight every day with bureaucrats, yeah. it was, it was worth it. Um, Gosh, the worst advice I've ever been given would fall into some sort of category of like, take the shortcut. Like, hey, it's it's worth doing this to get ahead. And I don't know that I could attribute a specific example, um, but the 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 you're better than that. They don't respect you if they're asking you to do that. Um, that's some of the worst advice that 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 can leave the listener feeling like there's a job in the organization that is beneath them. Um. And I think that's the, the the worst advice. I like that. Who is someone in history that you would like to have a conversation with? That's easy. Frederick Bastiat. I I don't know who that is. Please. So it's it's a 57 page essay called The Law. Uh he he's a French philosopher. Um he wrote at the time of the French Revolution, kind of surrounding it. 
um, inspired greatly by the negative rights in the U.S. Constitution, um, very much a contrarian thinker at the time, um, but I believe, I wrote what I believe to be um, the single most impactful and substantive writing that's non-theological in the history of the world called The Law. It's a quick read. It's a great read. Um, it's also a... a, a uh, at, at a surface level, re, uh, uh, at an understandable level, really fantastic philosophy when you're looking at world events. Um, and so I just, I think it's the best piece of writing I've ever seen and, and is kind of timeless, uh, but would love to pick his brain on, you know, whether or not, like how that came to be and uh, just so many things. I'd, I'd love to get a chance to talk to Bastiat. The second one, if I can have a second one is Milton Friedman. Um, I would love to spend time with uh, with Milton Friedman. I like those. I'm a, I'm a big history guy too, so I'm going to have to go back and and look at the law and see. I now I'm curious to see how that might have uh, bidirectionally impacted anything that happened in the in the United States and the way we view things. Um, it's it's a very interesting like so that like how those kind of motions circularly. So he kind of takes inspiration from uh, the 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 United States founding. Um, but I would just love to have yeah. that conversation. Um, but it's, it's, it's almost an inarguable philosophy that I think is really interesting when you take people just like on any self-ascribed label in the political spectrum, it becomes very difficult for them to argue that what they want isn't furthered by the, the thesis of the law. Okay. So what is inspiring you right now? <laughs> Sorry. Um, ask that again. Sorry, I was leaned away to cough and I no, you're fine. What is inspiring you right now? Building Redleaf, the team building. Um, you know, I, the, the jokes aside, like giving you the wandering answer a second ago of kind of like what we're doing. Um, we're helping organizations conquer the digital terrain. That means a lot. And so getting to a place where we build the team out, um, I, I, I'm a big believer that people and organizations are either kind of like team based or individual based. Um, people play team sports, people play individual sports. I'm a team sports guy. Um, and so building the team, we had a, a big addition recently with Greg Berlin, who formerly was North America for NTT sales, uh, NTT data. Um, so he, him coming on board as a partner, as a, just to lead the go to market effort is, uh, is a huge uplift. Um, but I want to build that team and I want to make an impact with the experiences and the capabilities we have. And so, um, in some regards, it becomes difficult to answer some of the short questions because I'm just living it obsessed all day, every day with how we build this thing up and we're, you know, 60, 60, 90 days old. But that is, uh, that is the motivating, inspiring thing right now to go, how do we, how do we take all of these things and turn them into something special? I like, and like, as you said earlier, stay tuned because there's yeah. more coming. Yeah. Um, it, it's the, like, I think I, I, and, and this is where, especially in the public sector, uh, but if you're not embarrassed by your launch, you waited way too long. And yeah. I just, I kind of lean into it and love it. It's like, look, we're going to, we're going to have this kind of messy thing as we get going. We know the core principles of, of the organization. We know the problems we want to solve. Now we have to figure out how to communicate that in a way that the market says, yes, I want that. Um, and then I, I think the other thing I'd say is uh, we still sell sled technology like there are alarm systems in 2008. 
we knock on every door and we say, I've got this whiz bang. Do you want it? No. Okay. And then the next door. And then we come back and we do, and we just, my 2010 campaign to, to, to get elected in the Florida legislature was exponentially more data driven and precise than anything I experienced from the sales side on sled. I think there's a massive data problem. There's a couple of hypotheses we have on that and some things we're building, but I think there is a way um, to transition out of the early 2000s when it comes to targeting and campaigning uh, that hasn't yet shown up in the sled space. And and we're having some some fun conversations right now, both with partnerships and some stuff we'll build uh, on top of that to change that game. And I think that's one of the things that gets me excited in the public sector is accelerating the pace of innovation because it's needed. Like it's not a question of should we be identity proofing? Every organization should be. How do we get legislators and executives to understand that if you're not validating it's a person and an authorized person that you're like, that should be malpractice. And at the end of the day, <laughs> you got me spun up again. Sorry. But at the end of the day, well, I can tell you're inspired. But government does so many things that would otherwise be a crime if it wasn't government doing it. It would otherwise be a lawsuit if it wasn't government doing it. So the amount of whether it's corruption or malpractice, whether it's negligence or intent, so many things happen that if the citizen and the constituents were actually treated like shareholders, behavior would change. How do we accelerate that change? Um, because there's just so many dangerous things happening when it comes to the way that we use or don't use capabilities that exist today that legitimately jeopardize our state and our nation in the middle of times that I don't think are hard to explain as a geopolitical war. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really well said. I'll get um, off my soapbox, sorry. <laughs> as you're stepping down, last question, where do you go to self-educate? I'm a big pod guy. Um, and it so much so that there's, I think it's progressive or Geico. One of the two has that commercial now that like, you know, the guy who always has a pod for something. I'm not yeah. that. Um, one of the things I've learned as I've, I've just tried to be, um, more introspective, uh, and self-aware is I don't learn well reading and it sucks. I wish I wish I could be an awesome reader. I wish I could read at the pace that other people do. My brain just doesn't, it doesn't work. Like I read 25 pages and then I turn around and go, wait, what did I read? Um, on the flip side, uh, I can like just ingest pod content um, all day long and keep notes running on it and that kind of thing. So I've just kind of learned that's a great format for me. And so I have... Um, a number of podcasts across different spectrums that range from, I want to shut my brain off, uh, to, to most of them, like I want to get better, faster and smarter. Um, and so I spend a lot of time, uh, when I'm alone on, uh, on podcast stuff. I'm going to start texting you some of the ones I listen to after love I listen it. to them. You're going to love it. I, love I, it. I, I'm the same way. And I think what I, I started ruminating on why I'm like that. And what I think I've discovered about myself is I like having a piece of my brain to allow myself to think about and process in real time what I'm listening to. So I love listening to audiobooks and and some of my favorite, like I would go for walks and listen to uh, like Atomic Habits, James Clear, one of my favorite books. And in my head, I'm thinking how, like, what are some now tactical ways that I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z today? And I can be doing that at the exact same time. And I can't, it, maybe some people can when they're reading. I just, I can't do it. 
I have friends that like swear they can go through a book a week and all those kind of things. Like I, I don't know if, um, you know, I I don't want to be hyperbolic, uh, but like, I don't know if my brain just doesn't function with reading. (laughs) And I think it's one of the crimes like of, of our educational system is it's like, I, my, I hated reading. And I always have, if I look backwards, my mom, um, used to pay me like 25 cents a page or something. If I read as a kid in like elementary school, cause I hated it. And when we had summer reading, like, so, you know, what, what it was maybe like 20 bucks a book or something, but like she knew that she had to incentivize me to get through books if I was going to read. And I think if we're going to ask ourselves the honest question is the goal for our kids to grow up being great readers or great learners. And I think the goal is for them to be great learners. And I was uh, the kind of student that the traditional education system fundamentally failed. Um, and now that I have the freedom to figure out, like I've always been a learner. I've always been curious. I've always wanted to break stuff and fix stuff. I just didn't have an educational environment where that was rewarded. Mm-hmm. And when I read it, it's, it just doesn't work. And so instead of trying to make myself a good reader, I have just surrendered and said, I'm never going to be a good reader. That's okay. How do I, how do I learn pervasively in a way that works well for me? No, I totally agree. And if my wife ends up listening to this one, um, she's gonna love that because she's a she's a STEM teacher and she she loves creating those environments for for kids to be able to do that kind of stuff. Same way in our house, like that curiosity mindset, growth mindset. So, hey, I, I think that's that's I, if I went back to some of the best advice, like never stop learning, like always be curious. And anyway, my my mom's a teacher too. She's a kindergarten teacher. Um, so we had a you know, but. Yeah, I think it it's the fundamental question I would and I would teach this with my team too. If I had if I had a kid and the kid was trying, like stipulated they're trying in both and they have an F in one class and an A in one class and take off the table all the, you know, need to graduate all the other things, but just the and I can only afford a tutor in one, which one am I buying the tutor uh what which one am I paying for the tutor for? And the the real answer is I'm going to invest in the A there's, there's no point in investing in the F like that's not a skill set that God gave that kid. And if they want to get well-rounded as a hobby, fine. But when we talk about like for the team and for work and what they do, how do we put our teammates in the position to do what they're best at and keep them away from the things that they're mediocre or even bad at and find somebody else who's really great at those things. I think that's how great teams are built. And that just starts with us being willing to have an honest conversation and like, you know, jokes, movie quotes be told like i don't read good so i'm not going to try and learn that way but i'm also not going to let that be the reason i don't learn and so um i have just found that podcasts are a fantastic way for me to feel like i'm in the dialogue like you're describing Mm -hmm. having a conversation rather than like trying to read something that feels like i'm studying for a test ever to conquer never to yield It, it all comes back to it. It all comes back to it. Hey, Jamie, I really appreciate the time. It's been a lot of fun. As as promised, lots of sports analogies woven throughout. But um, thank you so much for for sharing a little bit about kind of what you're doing in the state of Florida, what you're doing now, your your views on everything. This has been this has been really really excellent. Awesome. I'll keep you updated on a couple of things. Uh, should have some fun news coming. But um, Brian, I can't thank you enough for having me on, and, and hopefully we can do it again. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes by heading over to governmenthuddle.com wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.